Hello and welcome to Optimal the Podcast. I'm your host, Dickon Weatherby. This podcast and my website all focus on one goal, and that's the quest for optimal health. If you're enjoying this podcast, please go over to OptimalDX.com. Check out our resources on how we can help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. So I'm joined as usual by Beth Allen DeLulio, who does all the research for ODX and this podcast. Hey, Beth, how's things? Hi, hi. Things are great. How are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> so our topic today, a little trip back to basics. Um, it's so interesting to me that, you know, talking to healthcare practitioners, I, th- I think sometimes they they're kind of struck with the shiny object syndrome. You know, what's <laughs> the latest biomarker, the latest supplement, mm-hmm. the latest lab test? Yes. Um, and in talking with you, it's like, I feel sometimes that they, they get, the, the foundations get lost. And mm-hmm. so uh, what, what I want to do today is kind of a little trip back to the foundations and take a look at cholesterol, yes. that uh, very basic building block of human biochemistry and physiology that everyone seems to have strong opinions about. <laughs> so in the first part of this podcast, we're going to go down um, and take a look at cholesterol, look at cholesterol, the molecule. What is it? What does it do in the body? Why shutting it down is not a great idea. And for those of you um, that know a ton about cholesterol and want to kind of fast forward to when we talk about biomarkers, please do so. I love going back to basic physiology and biochemistry, and um, this is a great opportunity for us to get refreshers on cholesterol so that we can have a more informed conversation with our patients and clients Mm -hmm. about it. So then we're going to dive into cholesterol, the biomarker. And so the last part of this podcast, we'll be looking at the biomarker. We'll be looking at ranges, clinical implications. Beth's done some research on that. And then if we have time, we'll kind of dive in a little bit too into some of the other uh, cholesterol biomarkers, the HDLs, the LDLs, and that sort of thing. And then finally, taking a look at some of those valuable ratios that we love to talk about. (laughs) All right, cholesterol, the basics. Uh, What you don't know, you didn't know, and now you can use in your clinic. That's (laughs) That's good. All right, so what is cholesterol? So remembering back to our basic physiology and biochemistry, uh, cholesterol is an important sterile lipid. It is actually made in the body. Uh, It is also found in animal-based foods. So obviously, if you're consuming an animal that makes its own cholesterol, the chances are you'll be uh, ingesting that cholesterol as well. Getting back to the uh, synthesis within the body, it's synthesized from a molecule called acetyl-CoA, which can be obtained from carbohydrates, fats, or proteins. And an important player in the synthesis, something that we will be talking about uh, in a few moments, is an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase. I'm sure you've all heard of it. Uh, we'll be talking about this enzyme a little bit later because it has, plays a very important role in human physiology. And Western medicine loves shutting it down. So, um, and that has uh, huge ramifications for human health as well. Cholesterol produced by every cell in the body, uh, though most production takes place in the liver. So liver, again, very, very important organ and very important for cholesterol synthesis. And here I think is the kicker. It's found in every cell membrane. Uh, It is the most abundant lipid in the brain, Uh, is found in abundance in the central and peripheral nervous systems, especially the myelin sheath. 
And in fact, it is the rate limiting for, myelin for myelination in the central nervous system. And it is a precursor to a number of vital compounds in the body. So Beth, why don't you uh, take a, a dive into mm -hmm. some of the things that you dug up about what cholesterol does in the body? What it does besides everything, right? You know, component <laughs> of every cell membrane. Yeah. So it is a component of F cell membranes and it contributes to structural integrity and membrane fluidity, which is so important to cell membrane function. It also serves as a precursor to all steroid hormones, the glucocorticoids, mineral corticoids, pregnenolone, the master steroid hormone, a DHEA, progestins, androgens, estrogens, and again, remember to stress how important this this molecule of cholesterol is in the body we can't live without it right we don't want it to get oxidized and contribute to cardiovascular disease but we can't live without it right. it is also a precursor to vitamin d it's a cholesterol compound in the skin that starts to be converted to vitamin d in the presence of uv light and of course bile salts so it's also needed for the production of bile salts and they facilitate digestion of fat and absorption of fat soluble vitamins so it's incredibly important for that uh, it also has antioxidant activity and we're going to have a, uh, a blog post on that specifically the antioxidant function of cholesterol was recognized as early on as the 1970s and it seems like cholesterol can intercept oxidants and in that process it does produce these oxysterols and they need to get eliminated but the oxysterols are there because cholesterol is protective so it helps protect us against oxidative stress and that's super important and the depletion of cholesterol will contribute to increased oxidative stress and ironically that will then disrupt cell mm -hmm. membrane function so again cholesterol we need it we can't live without it and and unfortunately people think it's a bad thing and that impression really overshadows what we know of it as a good thing right there's always this talk about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol <laughs> I want to come back to that concept of the cholesterol as an antioxidant. I, I, I wasn't aware that, you know, in intercepting that, those oxidants, it actually, you know, pr pr provides this compound called oxysteroids mm -hmm. that are actually eliminated via the bile and the feces. And I think one of the really incredible things about studying human physiology and biochemistry is how the body will use something which it is trying to get rid of, and it will use it in a way as an added function. So part of bile salts, uh, as a way to facilitate digestion of fat and the absorption of those fat-soluble vitamins. So let's, um, we'll, we'll dive in a little bit here, um, talking about dietary cholesterol, because I think, you know, growing up and obviously in the 80s and 90s, there was all this talk about, you know, oh, everything's cholesterol-free. I mean, I, I laughed my head off when I came to the States for the first time in the early <laughs> 90s, when, it, you know, avocados, cholesterol-free. Well, of course they're cholesterol-free. You know, they're not made by animals. So um, they were slapping on cholesterol-free to everything as if it was the, the panacea. So despite assumptions to the contrary, uh, dietary cholesterol does itself, does not contribute to elevated serum cholesterol or cardiovascular disease. Something you did mention, though, it's seriously important, is oxidized cholesterol is a huge culprit, and hopefully we'll have time in a little bit to talk about that. Most often dietary cholesterol will have an insignificant effect on blood cholesterol levels as it triggers a biofeedback loop via that enzyme we talked about, HNG-CoA reductase, that actually reduces endogenous uh, production. Uh, 
Okay. Also, a relative rise in blood cholesterol following dietary intake reflects a fairly balanced rise in both the LDL and the HDL. And interestingly, a meta-analysis revealed that a pronounced increase in HDL cholesterol occurred with dietary cholesterol intake of about 650 to 900 milligrams today. That's really quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Dietary cholesterol promotes the repair of demyelinated lesions in the adult brain. So again, this goes back to the whole thing. You know, don't demonize something that the body has spent uh, millions of years evolving <laughs> to you. use in a myriad of different places. I mean, you just look at the physiology, what we just talked about, and then we look at, uh, at the first sign of, oh, you've got high cholesterol, and the, and the allopathic physicians want to shut it down with a statin. <sighs> I think one of the funniest ones, though, when we looked at eggs, you know, in the 90s and and late Mm -hmm. 80s, how, you know, Mm -hmm. eggs were sort of should have had a skull and crossbones on them. But um, much maligned eggs has been pardoned um, as well. (laughs) Design studies indicate that egg intake does not negatively impact blood lipids for most levels. Um, In some cases, eggs shifted LDL to the preferred larger, fluffier LDL particles. I'm not going to have time to dive into LDL particles. I, I think we probably should do so at some point. Mm-hmm. There are, um, if you followed uh, Peter Atia, uh, MD.com, he does incredible mm-hmm. uh, work on lipids. If you want to dive deep, deep, deep mm-hmm. into the LDL particles, mm-hmm. he's a great, great resource for that. Just come up for air. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, my God. So current research has shifted its focus mm-hmm. away from cholesterol and towards systemic inflammation. I think this is really important for us as functional medicine practitioners, nutritional oriented, naturopathic oriented practitioners is to recognize that, you know, when we're looking at cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular risk, inflammation is probably more important uh, than necessarily the uh, individual players themselves. Not that the individual players don't play a role, but it, you have to look at the whole picture is I guess mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Beth, tell us a little bit. I mean, we talked about how um, allopathic medicine love to shut down cholesterol production. Um, talk a little bit about the downsides of this for human physiology. It's interesting because if you just are shutting down the liver production of cholesterol, there is a chance that other cells can produce their own cholesterol and, and locally and, and get what they need. But to me, it hasn't been studied adequately as far as all of the downsides. But if we know that we don't have enough cholesterol available, we lose cell membrane fluidity and function. Uh, it reduces the most abundant lipid in the brain. That could be a whole nother theme. Sure, <laughs> especially with Alzheimer's and you know, yes. brain dysfunction. Yeah. Yes, cholesterol is so important to the brain. Um, and it takes away that precursor, the availability of that as cholesterol precursor for producing your steroid hormones, your vitamin D, your bile salts. Uh, you lose the antioxidant capacity that cholesterol provides. And again, increased potential for oxidative stress and damage. Uh, increases the potential for oxidation of LDL cholesterol and the related atherosclerosis that it causes. So if you take away the antioxidant function of cholesterol, you might mm-hmm. actually increase the oxidation of the remaining LDL cholesterol, which then can contribute wow. to atherosclerosis. So yeah, this ha- to me, it's been kind that of totally understudied. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And then the statin side effects, if you're talking about shutting down production with the HMG co-reductase inhibitors, those statin side effects can be severe. And for some people, and it seems to be genetic in some cases, they can't take them at all because of muscle breakdown and across the hearts of muscle. So do you want to take a statin drug and then have the breakdown of cardiac muscle? Um, but one of the things about the HMG CoA reductase is that it's the same enzyme, not just for synthesis of cholesterol, but the same enzyme is used for the synthesis of other compounds like coenzyme Q10. Mm -hmm. 
So CoQ10 is incredibly important. It's a vital role in heart health, in mitochondrial function, energy generation via the electron transport chain. It's one of those last steps in the yeah. electron transport chain and antioxidant activity. So CoQ10 has a dual role depending on which form it's in. So when you cut down in the production of cholesterol by inhibiting that enzyme, you're also reducing CoQ10 production. And that can be, statins can cause a significant dose-related decline in serum CoQ10. And that was a significant decline in one of the studies that looked at two different types of statins, olpravastatin and lovastatin. Uh, in 2003, even they knew, they did a review of human and animal studies and found that statin-induced CoQ10 depletion is well-documented and has detrimental cardiac consequences. It's a drug-induced nutrient depletion. And I, you know, again, I used to carry around my drug-induced nutrient depletion handbook at the hospital, and I would pull it out and say, hey, doc, you know, this lady, she's 80 years old, her cholesterol's 80, and she's got congestive heart failure. Uh, she's on a statin, let's at least give her CoQ10. And he'd be like, no, 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 let's just wait for the, for the there was a, um, a drug that they combined, a statin with CoQ10, and it's patented. So he said, I'm going to wait for that drug to come out. I'm not going to give it just CoQ10 by itself. And it just would blow my mind because this is clearly a drug-induced nutrient depletion. Somebody has to be repleted if they're on a statin. So even if you keep your cholesterol nice and low and it looks good because the serum level is good, you might be depleting CoQ10, which can then contribute to heart failure. Wow. <laughs> so they've done studies in people that had an acute MI and the CoQ10, when they gave them 120 milligrams a day, of CoQ10, it was associated with significant reduction in total cardiac events and oxidative stress markers and fatigue. And they also found a significant increase in plasma, vitamin E and HDL. So that was by providing CoQ10, 120 milligrams a day to people who have had an acute MI. And that was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study published in 2003. <laughs> so why isn't this standard practice across the board for allopathic medicine? I don't understand. I don't, I bother, I, you know, I work with physicians. I really bother them. I bug them. <laughs> I harass them. Um, I do want to mention too, there was one study that's a different kind of lowering your cholesterol might not shut down that HMGA-CoA reductase enzyme, but another one that used monoclonal antibodies mm -hmm. that then would basically they were antibodies to a liver protein and the liver protein would tell the receptors in the liver to kind of go away. So they got rid of that protein and the liver receptors for LDL would increase and it would pull more LDL out of circulation. So with this super strong medication and it's monoclonal antibody again, they found they were lowering LDL cholesterol to extreme lows of 15 to 40 milligrams per deciliter, Whoa. which is, I know it's increased, it's so incredibly low. And they thought that, well, other cells will make up for it. If they need cholesterol, they'll make cholesterol. And um, they found it did reduce serum vitamin E, but interestingly, they claim there was no significant reduction in cortisol, adrenal, or gonadal steroid hormone synthesis, so, or levels in the blood. And I would like to see, like, you want to see, you know, quintiles for that, or quartiles, so you can see, well, if somebody was very, very, very low, or in their cortisol, adrenal, 
hormones that didn't show up. But if they had a slightly reduced level, that might be important. And they're saying no significant reductions, but there could be some important reductions mm -hmm. in those hormones. So sometimes the studies to me don't go far enough, or maybe they don't put all that information in there. But they did say that they lowered the LDL cholesterol to super, super low levels, and they didn't see lower levels of lower, significantly lower levels of these steroid hormones. So I'd like to see that done again and see what all the levels were. Um, and I want to make a note in another study I found when they said LDL of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter had an increased risk of um, cardiac events. So, really? you know, yeah, lowering the LDL too, too low, you're increasing risk of cardiac events. So I thought that was kind of interesting. They just think making LDL cholesterol disappear from the blood is a good thing. And as we know, it's not. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, we'll talk about towards the end of this podcast, we're going to kind of dive back in and we'll be looking at um, kind of the optimal ranges and the concept mm -hmm. of, because obviously maintaining total cholesterol and HDL and LDL and all the other associated lipids on the lipid panel within an optimal range is, is ideal. Mm -hmm. um, because not only are we focusing heavily on cardiovascular risk factors, which of course we should be, but mm -hmm. also recognizing that when you have those cholesterol levels within that optimal range, you're actually providing the body with the resource to uh, you know, have healthy cell membranes mm -hmm. uh, and all of that sort of stuff. So. Mm -hmm. Um, little Monday morning actionable actions. I love that, Beth. Thanks for putting that in here. So looking here at uh, obviously cardiovascular risk, um, that's why people are paying so much strong attention to total cholesterol values and why it's heavily medicated and that sort of thing. But recognizing that in order to do a full, complete assessment of cardiovascular risks, you have to look way, way, way beyond just total cholesterol. So we have to be looking, obviously, at, at some of the comorbidities that exist around cardiovascular risk. And what we're recognizing, and we've recognized, you know, in nutritional, naturopathic, and functional medicine models, that cardiovascular risk is actually extremely associated with diabetes and blood sugar dysregulation, obviously hypertension, uh, obesity, metabolic syndrome, inflammatory conditions. So anytime you're looking at cardiovascular risk, you have to pay attention to those comorbidities as well. Interestingly enough, those are some of the comorbidities around COVID-19 mm -hmm. uh, adverse outcomes. We will talk mm -hmm. about that at some point, or maybe we already have, I don't know. But anyway, um, also looking at psychosocial stresses, looking at the diet, looking at exercise and physical activity, pay attention to sleep habits, tobacco use, get a full complete assessment of your serum lipids. So these would be the ones that are on a standard serum lipid panel. So that would be your total cholesterol, your LDL, your HDL, your VLDL, your non-HDL, uh, obviously your triglycerides, and then we'll look at some of those ratios as well. But then going beyond that, looking at the NMR lipoprofile, profile, particle size, particle number, maybe we'll do a, a podcast on those guys at some mm -hmm. point or, or do some blog posts on that. Uh, seriously important uh, to pay attention. And then obviously looking at our apolipoproteins, ApoA1, ApoB, the ApoB to A1 ratio, um, LP, uh, lipoprotein little a, um, all seriously important uh, to pay attention to. Um, assessing our uh, antioxidant potential and oxidative stress risk, looking at the diet. Uh, we've talked a lot about oxidative stress in previous podcasts, and we're in the middle of doing uh, a whole series of, of articles that's been, been putting together some really good research around oxidative stress. So diet, environmental aspects of that as well. Assess downstream metabolites, again, looking at the steroid hormones. So if a patient is uh, low in certain steroid hormones, 
think that there might be an issue with the supply of the precursor. So cholesterol levels might be low or cholesterol levels might be high. The body's like going in in its attempt to create more cholesterol in mm -hmm. order to create more steroid hormones. Mm -hmm. Look at vitamin D levels. Mm -hmm. And then um, some of the other biomarkers that are associated with those comorbidities would be glucose, estimated average glucose, uh, hemoglobin A1C, fasting insulin, looking at the HOMA scores, ferritin, um, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, omega-3 index, TMO, something that we haven't really talked mm -hmm. about, or uh, we'll probably get that into the software very soon, or trimethylamine N-oxide, uh, interleukin-6, fibrinogen, um, and then of course you've got your uh, sex hormones as well. So, mm -hmm. And then finally recognizing that there is a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, this is a genetic predisposition to have higher cholesterol levels. I'm not gonna go into all the, all the details of that, but mm -hmm. if you've got patients with running their cholesterol, total cholesterol levels in the three to five hundreds, you know, they might be a heterozygous for familial hypercholesterolemia. Hyper and then we even have patients, I, I haven't personally seen, I'm not sure if you have Beth, you know, with, with their total cholesterols in the, in the 600s up to mm -hmm. a thousand. Now mm -hmm. you're looking at homozygous mm -hmm. uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. So it exists and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, definitely worth uh, paying attention to because, you know, we want to pay attention to the familial aspects of cardiovascular risk as well. And yeah, if, and if they see, even, even if they see a, an LDL cholesterol that's over 190, they might mm -hmm. suspect familial hypercholesterolemia right. too. That's really true. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about these biomarker values. So, uh, you know, because cholesterol is basically lipophilic, it must be transported in the blood inside lipoproteins. So, coming back to the main um, types of cholesterol that we're measuring, VLDLs, LDLs, HDLs, they, they're all lipoprotein um, sort of carrier molecules mm -hmm. that carry cholesterol around the body. And these obviously can be easily measured. So these, are, these form the traditional cholesterol biomarkers that make up the standard lipid panel. So what we're going to talk about here is the standard lipid panel. So total cholesterol, we're going to start with that. This is probably the one that people have the most opinions about. Uh, total cholesterol is something that are probably of all of the biomarkers in our software, this is the one that people are tearing their hair about, going, oh, the range is off. I want you to change the range. Can I change the range? Well, remember, guys, it's just one piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. um, other things have got to be assessed further. Um, having an understanding of what a low cholesterol is as opposed to a high cholesterol is really important. But Let's um, talk about uh, cholesterol levels. Let's take a look at the standard lab cholesterol values. So Beth provided some pretty good research on this. So we're going to look all the way back to 2013, the American College of Cardiologists, the American Heart Association guidelines. Now, you have to remember that when we're looking at biomarker values as they appear on a lab test, the labs themselves have their own criteria for creating their lab ranges. And so what we're looking at here is not necessarily what the labs are creating or putting on their lab testing, because that's basically done on the sample size of their patient population or their mm -hmm. lab tested population. What we're looking at here is these organizations such as the American College of Cardiologists, the ACC, or the uh, American Heart Association or the AHA. So in 2013, this, they talked about total cholesterol. Their therapeutic goal for total cholesterol ranged from below 220 milligrams per deciliter to below 200. So for those of you um, outside of the US, that's about 5.69 to 5.17 millimoles per liter. And then they did an update in 2019 and Beth provided this information. What was interesting, they talked about total cholesterol, but they didn't even mention a range for it. They instead were emphasizing lifestyle and dietary changes and focused less on total cholesterol, 
but providing more clear guidance for LDL and non-HDL cholesterol. And so their recommendations for a cutoff for a diagnosis of primary hypercholesterolemia focus a lot more on LDL and non-HDL and didn't even include total cholesterol. I thought that was pretty interesting. So LDL cholesterol, their cutoffs were about 160 to 189 milligrams per deciliter. We talked earlier in the first part of the podcast about one, uh, something about one, above 190. You've got to start suspecting familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, so that was 160 to 189 milligrams per deciliter for LDL cholesterol. So that's about 4.1 to 4.8 millimoles per liter. And then non-HDL cholesterol, this is something else that we're calculating and putting into the software. It's on pretty much every lipid panel. They were, uh, their cutoffs around 190 to 219 milligrams per deciliter or 4.9 to 5.6 millimoles per liter. Um, then we look at the National Lipid Association recommendations. Their borderline high for total cholesterol was about 200 to 239 milligrams per deciliter. So anything above that was considered to be high. So that was about 5.17 to 6.18 or 6.2 millimoles per liter. And then we have the U.S. National Library of Medicine. Their, quote, healthy levels of total cholesterol for men and women aged 20 and older. Uh, they wanted to see a total cholesterol between 125 to 200. That makes me... Uh, a little concerned about that 125 mm -hmm. but you know so when we're looking at an optimal um it's just a side note here that beth pointed out that a low cholesterol below 160 and a high cholesterol above 240 is associated with severe acute pancreatitis which i thought was interesting mm -hmm. so when we look at those standard or normal ranges those are ones that are recommended by these organizations and not necessarily the ones that appear on on panels typically uh, Quest and LabCorp, they're hovering around the, the 190s to 200 as their kind of standard ranges. Um, because this podcast and the work of Optimal DX is don't settle for normal, strive for, strive for optimal, mm -hmm. I do want to take a quick look at a pretty interesting uh, study that you found, Beth, in lipid mm -hmm. health disorders in January 2019. So they looked at 1,754 healthcare workers at low risk for cardiovascular disease and examined the screening value of total cholesterol levels. So researchers suggested that an upper cutoff point of 230 for fasting total cholesterol would help identify those people with LDL cholesterol levels of, of 160 or greater or non-HDL cholesterols of 190 or greater. Remembering here that the AHA and the ACC in 2019 are focusing a lot more attention on those LDL and non-HDL values, I think this is a really, really important. So we know that uh, cholesterol is essential for cellular metabolism, vulnerability to oxidation and inflammation. You know, something you and I've talked about, Beth, a lot, you know, reasonable and optimal total cholesterol will probably be around 160 to 220. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that would allow us to... Uh, be able to keep those lower LDL values in, in check and then obviously be much more aware of when LDL levels go above and non-HDL levels start to increase as well. Remembering, you know, this is just one value of probably 15 to 20 independent risk factors for cardiovascular mm -hmm. disease. So, mm -hmm. you know, an additional assessment has to be made uh, of all of these other, other biomarker values. So um, looks as if total cholesterol is the, the controversial one, but really its importance is somewhat overblown. Uh, maybe the more important players on the lipid panel are LDL and non-HDL. So we've got a few more minutes here. Do you want to take us on a quick journey on the biomarkers of uh, LDL 
Yeah, um, we definitely want to assess LDL and then particle size and number too, if you can get yeah. some advanced testing. Uh, and I did think that was very interesting. There was a predictor of subclinical atherosclerosis in those people with no signs or symptoms of heart disease. And the subgroup, they found the blood pressure below 120 over 80, a fasting glucose of less than 100, a hemoglobin A1C of less than 5.7, and total cholesterol of less than 200. They didn't break down the quartiles, but at least this particular study was saying, all right, let's take a look at optimal levels mm. instead of just traditional levels. And in the study too, they found LDL cholesterol and glycosylated hemoglobin levels were associated with increased risk of atherosclerosis. So we got to remember that blood glucose evaluation when you're looking at some somebody's cardiovascular risk. Absolutely. Very, very important because atherosclerosis is at the, the heart of it all. So the LDL levels and, okay, and then also the blood sugar regulation levels. Our HDL cholesterol represents reverse cholesterol transport. So you always want to look at your HDL, but a high LDL, HDL, excuse me, it can be too high. And a very high HDL was related to cardiovascular events and mortality. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of different numbers they came to, but basically over 90 milligrams for deciliter for HDL was a negative. So that actually increased your risk of cardiovascular events. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, the VLDL is more representative. I'm just trying to like kind of wrap my head around that so looking at hdl <laughs> cholesterol is the reverse cholesterol transport it's taking cholesterol out of the cell mm -hmm. and into general circulation and potentially the liver to be probably excreted is, is probably what i'm thinking so if you've got an extremely high level of hdl cholesterol that means that the cells potentially are not getting enough cholesterol right well, I mean, it could mean there's a ton of cholesterol that is in the cell because it can pick up oxidized cholesterol okay, too. Yeah. And I call it the HDL taxi. It picks it up and takes it back to the liver for processing. So either there's an extremely high amount of cholesterol to process, or in some, what I understand is it can go up when it has to carry toxins as well. So this particular article didn't go into that, but very high HDL levels might mean exposure to pesticides and other lipophilic toxins. Um, so again, is it just so much cholesterol that's oxidized cholesterol that has to be processed and the HDL goes up to deal with it? And that represents increased risk of cardiovascular events and mortality. I think the more, the moral of the story here is you don't just want it to go to the moon. Everybody thinks HDL should be higher and higher and higher, just like sometimes they think total cholesterol should be lower and lower and lower. Mm -hmm. But there is a downside to having HDL too high. And it could be a whole nother, you know, I could do, I could do some more research about it reflecting increased toxicity and being a carrier for lipophilic uh, toxins. And that could, again, contribute to cardiovascular disease. We know toxins like that contribute to oxidative stress, which then can contribute to cardiovascular disease. So it's doing its job when it's at a healthy level. But the point in, in this case, it can be too high, right? Because mm -hmm. then you're going into, it's associated with cardiovascular disease. So we have a, a cutoff too in the software. I was actually looking at that. Maybe we could revisit that too with some, we tend to update, right? We, Dig and dig and dig oh, yeah, and we'll find new information. Absolutely, it's a fluid system, yep. so we can yep. update. Yep. Yeah. So VLDL, 9-HDL should be should be um, tested. And other, you want to go into the others? We have some of the breakdown, the lipoprotein particle, number. Yeah, we'll probably have ratios. to stop. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's awful. We... <laughs> yeah, so, but I did want to finish up actually looking at something that you and I have been reporting on a lot, which are the ratios. Um, so to, total cholesterol to HDL ratio, LDL to HDL, 
and of course the ApoB to ApoA1. Uh, we've done uh, a podcast on ApoB to ApoA1, or at least included it in one of our biomarkers. So if you want to go back to the ODX blog, optimaldx.com forward slash blog, look up the ApoB to ApoA1. We've got a, a great article on that. It's in the software. These are all calculated for you. Um, but really, you know, looking at these ratios, specifically total cholesterol to HDL and LDL to HDL, really provide us almost a, a pr greater predictive value in terms of mm -hmm. cardiovascular risk than those alone. So just follow, finish up here with uh, total cholesterol to HDL. Optimal range would be below about three on those LDL to HDL uh, ratio. Optimal for men below about 2.34 and for women below about two. Um, so a lot of great stuff. Um, just to kind of run through just some of those advanced biomarkers you were talking about. So we've obviously got APOA1, APOB, we've got the ratio of those two together. We've got the NMR lipo profile where we're looking at HDL particle numbers, HDL size, LDL particle numbers, LDL size, small LDL particle numbers. <laughs> the LDL size I mean, goes on and on and on. So a lot, lot of that stuff is really, really essential. We will be working on on getting those into into the application and, and oxidized LDL too. If everybody can get a hold LDL, of that, yeah, I'd love that. And, uh, lipoprotein little a, mm -hmm. um, LP uh, PLA two uh, lipoprotein associated phospholipase A two, incredibly important biomarker to be looking at. Myeloperoxidase. So um, yeah, it's this. We could be spending a whole year just. I know. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> yeah, of all of this stuff. Well, Beth, thank you so much for for all that you do to contribute to the uh, the optimal podcast and everything you're doing for biomarkers and for uh, everyone out there. So really appreciate all of your hard work. You're welcome. Thank well, you. that concludes this uh, uh, month's uh, Optimal, the podcast. Um, Dr. Dick and Weatherby, thanks, Beth Allen, for, for all of your contributions and for everything that you do. Um, if you are interested in Optimal DX, go over to OptimalDX.com. Uh, we've got resources there that you can uh, download and, and be educated about how we can move beyond just looking at normal and really embracing Optimal. So ultimately, that's the goal of Optimal DX is to really embrace this concept of optimal health and wellness. And how can we use all of the tools and systems that we have available to us to help our patients move from just thinking that they're normal to embracing an optimal life. So thanks very much, Beth. Uh, we Thank will you. see you next month.